Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. And welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith, co-host of the Housing Hour, filling in for Kevin Ray, who will not be with us today. But we will carry on without him because we've got a great show lined up. But before we start this great interview, let me tell you how you can plug in with us. Through the housinghour.com. That's our treasure trove of information. We've got eight years worth of information and shows there in the past that would provide you some good information and good content with every topic that you can imagine that's pertaining to just about anything. Uh, that's what we cover here at the, the Housing Hour. Plus, so, social media platform, check us out on Facebook slash The Housing Hour, on Twitter at The Housing Hour, and um, all the other platforms in between. I've got a great social media team behind me that provides support for putting out these uh, posts on these platforms, so we appreciate them. So you can find everything that, uh, that you want to know about us, thehousinghour.com. And today we've got an important topic. I wanted to, I really wanted to go into this because several years ago in the city of Oak Ridge, um, we, they passed a city ordinance for the city of Oak Ridge, which is kind of a very conservative type of atmosphere and, and policy. They allowed um, chickens to be raised in the backyards of uh, the homes. And that kind of opened up the questions of chicken, chicken breeds, this, that, and the other thing, fresh eggs, fresh animals, those types of things. And the heritage breeds started surfacing. I started reading articles about heritage breeds. And so what we decided to reach out, and our guest today is Jeanette Berenger. She is the Livestock Conservancy Senior Program Manager for um, Jeanette, I, I can't remember the, the, the website, but welcome into uh, the Housing Hour. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell me the website for, for our listeners. Our website's livestockconservancy.org. There you go. So check that out. That'll be, we'll be posting that, Jeanette, on our website here uh, for, for the show, for our listeners and viewers. Um, we podcast the show online, so people will be able to pull this up at any information. Click on that and, and help them out. Maybe support them. Donate to their cause because we're going to learn a little bit about what they're all about because it's a very important piece. Um, but first, Jeanette, I want I, I got your bio off the Internet. Tell me where you are located now. Where is the Conservancy located? Well, our national office is in Pittsburgh, uh, North Carolina, which is right near Chapel Hill. So we're kind of smack dab in the middle of North Carolina. Excellent. And so tell me about what you do. What's your kind of present role in in this uh, conservancy? Well, I I, I do all kinds of things. Um, Conserving um, livestock and poultry breeds is pretty complex, uh, more so than most people think. So day-to-day, it it varies. But um, a a lot of what I do is, um, you know, technical assistance. Um, I manage uh, some rare breed stud books. I do field work. Uh, Sometimes I'll go out and, like, in the fall, I'm going to be investigating a, a herd of Texas longhorn cattle up in Nevada, um, I do a lot of writing for publications, and 
Um, and then a lot of um, help with breed associations, uh, you know, associations. I, I like to say that people that work with rare, rare breeds work with them because they want to do something different. And as such, these people are typically very independently minded people and try to get everybody to work together and get along. Uh, sometimes it's a challenge, and so uh, we try to uh, help breed associations if they happen to be struggling with politics or, or if they're trying to get off the ground. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, there, I, we do a lot of educational programming. Uh, spend a lot of time helping people understand how to breed animals properly and breed animals so that they're, you know, productive, not just um, eye candy or a lawn ornament. Part of our strategies for conserving these these rare breeds is to give them back their jobs. And so um, producing productive animals is a skill that's often been forgotten by people. And with all the uh, new folks coming into farming, uh, whether it's a hobby or a business, um, there are a few places that they can really learn to um, breed these animals appropriately uh, because, you know, the, what, what you learn in universities is largely based on commercial breeds, which are a completely different animal, um, you know, especially like turkeys and chickens, commercial chickens and turkeys are completely different from the kind of chickens and turkeys we work with. And so what you'd learn in college isn't necessarily going to work for the birds that, um, you know, we work with. Well, I, I mean, how did how in the world did you get involved in this? I mean, I mean, that seems such a specific talent and skill set that you're you possess right now. How did this evolve? Where did you start out? How did you learn all this? Well, I actually uh, fell into a career early on. I was uh, on a track to go to vet school, and in the middle of it, I got uh, kind of recruited by uh, the local zoo. Um, the the Deputy director knew me through my work at the vet clinic and asked me if I would consider being a zookeeper. And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it before. And she encouraged me to apply, and I got in. And I was a professional zookeeper for almost 20 years. And how I made my way to Heritage Breeds was one of the areas that I was in charge of was the Heritage Breeds Farm. And, you know, as the years went on, uh, you know, originally I was a lemur specialist, and I work with all different kind of species from polar bears to penguins and big cats, and I loved lemurs, were, were really my uh, big love for a long time. But over the years, I found myself more and more drawn to the farmyard, and as my new zookeepers were, you know, coming in and getting trained, the in the zoo world, the the farm animals don't get much respect by by the zoo keepers, and so you know my keepers always wanted to go mess with the lemurs or the gibbons or you know something that's more exotic, and so I'd end up in the farmyard a lot, and um, I thought I really enjoyed it and uh, interacting with the people, and we had these. Um, Dexter cattle that I would take for walks around the zoo and you know little did my keepers know while they were busy picking up monkey poo I had a cup of coffee in one hand and a cow in another and I took her for exercise walk in the morning which was 
pretty sweet. And, um, you know, and seeing kids react to the cattle, you know, they were both cows and they both had horns and they'd come running up to us, oh my God, it's a bull, I need to get out of here. And, <laughs> and you know, they were under so many misconceptions about, you know, farm animals and where their food comes from that you end up having these really great conversations with people that's really, uh, you know, moving to them. Uh, the other thing that I found attractive is that People formed connections with these animals in a much different way than they did with the exotics. And the exotics were really exciting, but people couldn't form a personal connection with them in the way that the farm animals did. And, you know, I would see the the repeat customers that would come in and, uh, you know, a lot of our zoo society members, they could come visit the zoo as many times as they want as a society member. And they'd always, um, you know, end up at the farmyard to see Eddie the goat or just sit down and spend time watching the chickens. And and they just felt this connection, which I find very moving. And so um, as a conservationist at heart, I found the the messages that were coming out of the farm were so important, uh, you know, from teaching about biodiversity to teaching where your food comes from. And I find that really, really exciting because there's a lot of people that have a major disconnect with where their food comes from. And so um, I, when I retired from the zoo, I ended up, it seemed like a natural fit to come to the Livestock Conservancy and uh, they knew me a, a bit, and uh, when they found out I was available, they called me and said, hey, you want to come work for us? So I uh, packed my bags in New England and came down to North Carolina, and that's been 12, 12 years ago now. Well, and you also have experience in Madagascar, so I've seen the movie. Yeah. That's got to have been a little fascinating <laughs> down there. <laughs> that was a bit surreal. I'd, I'd never been in a de- developing country before, and... Uh, I was young, and I, I kind of knew what I was getting into, but I, I just really wanted a life adventure. And I, I think that if everybody has an opportunity to develop to visit a place like that, it's well worth the experience because it's really life-changing. And then when you come back home, you really appreciate what you have. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, being in the middle of a... a <laughs> Uh, culture that's so different and and, you know i was down there for about four months yeah i I remember the the first time i i called my then boyfriend who is now my husband hey jeanette Um, jeanette let me interrupt you one second we're coming up against a hard break so i want to pick that up on the other side tell me about your story when we come back after these messages this is the housing hour Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith, and we've got a great show here in studio with us talking about heritage farm animals. And we're going to get to really dive into that 
in the next couple of segments here. But it's real important to think about Heritage Farm Animals. We have Jeanette Berenger, Senior Program Manager from the Livestock Conservancy in North Carolina. And Jeanette, at the break, I apologize for a hard break. We come up against those from time to time in radio. But um, you're talking about in Madagascar and your husband. Tell us that story, please. Oh, <laughs> oh it's just funny that... Uh, you know, talking about culture shock, and mm-hmm. you know, I I did speak uh, a good amount of French, and in Madagascar, you only speak French or Malagasy, and that's about it. And um, so it's the first time I've been in a developing country, and the only person in the country I knew uh, decided uh, she had to go to a meeting in Nairobi, so I was left by myself to do the work, and I, I was working at the the, the National Zoo in Antenna Narivo, and so there are people there that, you know, I, I was working with, but I remember the first time I, I was able to get to a phone, and it took me three days to get to the phone, and at $10 a minute, three <laughs> minutes maximum, I, you know, wow. as soon as I heard his voice, I was just like, oh, I'm okay, <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> And, um, but the really cool thing is, you know, after you get your act together and, you know, you just start a routine and I just felt so alive and so invigorated with being able to do something like that on my own. And and I always traveled smart, but, you know, my take home is that, gosh, if you can really get a feel for what it's like to live in such a different place, Mm -hmm. it really makes you appreciate what you have at home. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this, because in the bio, I found something very fascinating, and it's about your husband. Um, how long have you all been married? Oh gosh, we're twenty six years now. Twenty six years. So uh, in Tennessee, I don't. Have you been to Tennessee or Gatlinburg I or? Come, yeah? I come to Tennessee at least two or three times a year. We uh, wow. do a lot of work with Tractor Supply. And they're uh, based out of Nashville, so oh, uh, excellent. We, we travel over there quite often. So and I tote it, chickens along, usually. <laughs> of course you do. Of course you would. <laughs> uh, but uh, now, if you've ever been to Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge or anything, on the side of the road you see these little white church-looking buildings, and that's where a lot of folks go in, and they, on the whim, having a nice weekend, they get married. They get married mm-hmm. in these little church chapels along the way. That's how it's done here in East Tennessee a lot of times. But you have a real interesting place that you got married. Would you share that with everyone? <laughs> <laughs> I got married in the zoo in the plains of Africa. <laughs> the plains of Africa in a in a hut yeah. <laughs> under a big grass hut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's rare. That you see, you're yeah. a heritage breed, but all by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just made sense, and and uh, um, we got married. Uh, uh, it just. You know, we had just come back from, uh, you know, I was I had just come back from Madagascar, so I had no money. And, and uh, you know, our director at the time was very generous to let me use the zoo after hours. And so That's we had a lovely uh, <laughs> wedding there. And uh, Did all and the animals attend? Knowledge, <laughs> yeah, we had giraffes and elephants <laughs> in the background and and tiki torches lit up to keep the mosquitoes away, and, and uh, oh, it was wow. great. We, I That's think awesome. I was the first person to ever be married there, and I don't know if anybody else has ever gotten married there, but... Uh, that's my claim to fame, so I'll stick with it. I mean, that sounds like something Jane Goodall would have done, or something. Do you ever do you relate <laughs> to her somehow? I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, in some ways. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it just seemed like a really logical thing to do, and it was beautiful, and and uh, the rain held off until you know we we left in the evening, and so you know Mother Nature was with us at that oh, that's time. That's awesome. Um, so how did you? So what was the the turning point getting you back to uh, North Carolina to the conservancy, uh, conservancy with the livestock conservancy? What what was it that clicked that made you just say this is going to be it? Well, <clears throat> you know, a- after being so long in in the zoo field, as as I said, I really started to gain an affinity for um, you know taking care of what's in my own backyard and you know these these breeds that have been around for you know centuries Mm -hmm. some of them have been around for thousands of years and some of them are so close to disappearing and when you equate that you know this breed of chicken there, there are more giant pandas in the world than there are of this breed of chicken you know, it it kind of puts things in perspective, and yeah. and uh, you know, I've always been one to go with the underdogs, and and so in the zoo world, uh, the the farm animals farm animals are always the underdogs, and and um, the what the conservancy does is really exciting, and it it struck me in a very personal way, so. You know, I had my duh move moment and uh, decided to start getting into um, livestock conservation, and I've never looked back. and And uh, it's I, I have way too much fun at my job. It's it it's certainly really sounds great it. Mission. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's give everybody a perspective here, because a lot of folks probably. You know, okay, heritage. Okay, you might have an old chicken or something that you know somebody used. But what's go back in time? I mean, if if I understand correctly, and this is what got me very interested in this subject, is that each community across the state, each community across the country, each community across the world had their own specific breeds that they had to feed their family. Whether it was certain breeds of chicken that gave, produced the eggs and the meat. Uh, cows and and those types of things kind of explain what this kind of came from this whole idea of conserving well the you know the um it's correct that each breed had a purpose and that purpose uh, was in a particular community so the animal had to uh, fit that purpose and had to thrive in the environment in which they expected it to um, a, a breed that um, I, I always find uh, fun to talk about uh, is called the um, Breton Pinot Noir, which is a, a dairy cow in France, and uh, in particular in Brittany. And if you've ever been to Brittany, um, it's it's rough living out there. You know, the the weather can be uh, very gray, very cold, very wet. Um, in the winter time, there's not a lot to eat over there, and so. They needed a dairy cow that could handle those kind of situations. And um, the way culture was over there is the men were often out to sea, you know, fishermen, and so it was the women that were home taking care of the farm and the animals. And if you've ever met a Breton woman, they're itty-bitty ladies, you know, maybe four feet tall. My mother-in-law is like four feet tall. And, uh, well, no, five feet tall, sorry. And um, But, um, you know, she's, um, she's a tough lady, and, uh, but little. And so this 
breed of cow developed that um, was small, easy to handle, had a good temperament, and during the wintertime when there wasn't a lot to eat, they could forage on the hedgerows or whatever it was that um, where they could get, you know, as much nutrition as possible. And and um, it just so happens they have, you know, a beautiful um, milk that's rich and full of butter fat, and they produce these beautiful butters. And um, they uh, also, Brittany is well known for their sea salt. And if you go to some of the best restaurants in France, they'll have you know, milk with uh, the, the sea salt in, in uh, butter with the uh, sea salt in the mix. And, you know, it's um, that used to be regular table fare for the Breton people, but now that the foodies have found it, uh, you know, it's popular. Um, you know, another example is like the, the Dominique chicken, which is our oldest American breed. And if anybody has family that has been around the, the South for a long time, I bet you'd be hard-pressed to find any family that at one time or another didn't have someone who had a Dominique chicken, or they also called them Dominickers. And these were very hardy, um, rough-and-tumble chickens that laid a lot of eggs but also had pretty decent meat proportions. Um, but they were excellent foragers. So these are the chickens that you know would have been foraging around in manure piles or catching bugs and and um and they were very popular throughout the south because they really uh were self-sufficient and um you know could live off some table scraps while they're foraging for stuff and and they're um a piece of of history in the south that you know had been around for a long long time and um and today are are rare just because they don't grow really big they don't grow really fast and you know they can't compete with with commercial breeds right and and i tell you we're going to continue this conversation because you just set that up for the next segment which is perfect we're going to talk about how this evolved and how did we get to where we are today uh we're with jeanette Beringer, livestock conservatory we'll be back after these messages Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour with a hot topic. I think it's hot topic. Heritage Farm Animals. This is the Housing Hour, thehousinghour.com. And uh, we're talking about all the important stuff. And with us is Jeanette Barringer, Senior Program Manager of Livestock Conservancy, livestockconservancy.org. And you can check us out and find that on our uh, housinghour.com website. Very important topic because what you were describing, Jeanette, before we went to break is a specific cow located in a specific area giving the sweetest type of milk to produce, you know, great products. And um, we've kind of lost that. But before we go into some of this that I have 100 questions for, tell me the, the, the type of animals that are in your conservancy that you are watching. Well, we um, watch all of the um, classic farm animals that would have been on American farms, so cattle, goats, sheep, pigs, 
uh, horses, donkeys, and then, you know, the poultry species would right. be, oh, and rabbits. Oh, yeah. And then um, poultry species would be chickens, ducks, geese, and, and turkeys. And we have about 170 breeds that are on our conservation priority list. And, um, <clears throat> and, and that's a, a big challenge. It's a oh, lot yeah. of breeds. and. Um, but, you know, we've managed to not lose any since we, we started up in 1977. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the Conservancy uh, works hard to not let any of them slip through the cracks. But it's increasingly a challenge, and uh, especially for some of the equine breeds, because uh, owning horses is, uh, it can be expensive, and mm-hmm. breeding horses even more so. And with the the horse market being the way it is um horses are um some of the more challenging species to do conservation work with well let me let me ask you because um my grandparents owned a farm in upper east tennessee it was maybe 100 acres of ground and i remember as a kid there was a lot of different looking chickens that are out there. There wasn't just one white chicken. There were all different looking, fuzzy, whatever. Ducks, too. What you mentioned, all of the animals that you mentioned, that was on our farm. The one thing that you did throw in there that I have a question about are pigs. I only thought there was one type of pig. Are there different types of uh, farm pigs? Oh, there, there are loads. And, <laughs> and, um, I didn't know. Pigs are actually one of the species that has had the greatest loss in breeds over the past century. We've lost a lot of varieties of pigs, and um, they, you know, they just get out-competed or fall out of favor, and, and that's all she wrote. But um, they come in all, all kinds of sizes and colors, and and they're not all big pink animals. We've got red ones, we've got black ones, we've got spotted ones. We've, you know, and they um, they all uh, have their specialties. You know, you've got um, Tamworth hogs that, you know, they're bright red and they're considered uh, almost a not a primitive breed, but as close to the Iron Age pig, wow. you know, hundreds of years ago, and and. Um, they uh they're very athletic and they're fine boned and um they haven't changed much over the years <clears throat> um except in the the show circle um one of the biggest things that threatens pigs is the show ring <laughs> and the show ring tends to not do very kind things to uh, rare breeds and in order to be competitive a lot of people cross the rare breeds with commercial strains and completely change the breed and and now it's a hybrid and um this is the uh case for a lot of the tamworths that are out there if you put a good old-fashioned tamworth side by side with a commercial tamworth you can immediately see they're two completely different animals and um, the one we're most concerned about is the original genetically pure animal that is slower growing is a good forager good mother doesn't get too big and and has really tasty meat right and uh, that slow growth equates to flavor and that's what a lot of people have kind of forgotten and and i'm sure you've heard the stories about you know that pork is not supposed to be white meat it is now because you know these commercial hogs grow so fast that 
their meat is pale. They don't have a lot of flavor, and and um, compared to some of these heritage breeds, and and so um, uh, pigs. Uh, even though a lot of folks are getting into uh, raising pigs, I, I find my pig talks are are really packed at, at the different fairs I go to, and it's all with people that just want to have two or three in the backyard to raise for meat for the family. And uh, and these heritage breeds are perfect for that. And and um, and when you rediscover the flavor that's there in these pigs, they're they're amazing. Uh, you know, it's uh, um, uh, it's hard to even describe the the difference with commercial pork. And we had a, a tasting up in New York City a few months ago at a Korean barbecue, and the breed of pig that we brought was called the Mishan. And actually, the largest um, herd of Michans in the country is not far from you in Knoxville. Mm. And um, this is an ancient Chinese pig, thousands of years old. And um, uh, through a complicated set of circumstances, we ended up with a population here that's quite important. And so this was kind of our... Our um, our first event where we're going to feature this pork, and um, when you look at the meat, uh, if you put it side by side with the steak, you could hardly tell the difference because wow. it was so red, <clears throat> and the fat was very different too. And um, the chef, who's who's Korean herself, um, she, um, you know, we were talking about what breed to feature, and it just seemed to me a no-brainer, the Michon, because the Michon's very similar to the pigs that would have been found in Korea. Uh, in Korea, most of their native pigs are gone. They've right. all been replaced by commercial pigs, and there's only one place that I could find where there's still some of the old native pigs around on this one island, and she says, I was just on that island last year, and it was the best pork I ever had. Right. And so we could really enjoy this stuff. And, right. Well, and it, so um, they they geeked out over it. I'd never seen her entire kitchen was so ecstatic with the meat and how different it was and how it was so perfect for the their cooking methods. And um, it was well, let great. Me, let me that. ask you this, though, because um, I can hear a lot of people uh, say, well, you know, it's great preserving history. History being preserved is something we want to do. That's great. That's great. That's great. But this, this, um, this is a lot more important than just preserving history. Isn't there a security oh, aspect, you know? Speak it's, to that. It's all about um, biodiversity and securing Bingo. food resources for the future. And, um, you know, without diversity, uh, we're going to get into trouble in the not-too-distant future. And when you have a, an agricultural system based on just a few resources like, you know, the dairy industry, 99% of it's Holstein and, or beef, you know, a lot of it's based on Angus or Hereford or, you know, chickens, uh, you know, you've got these commercial crosses and these populations, because they breed, you know, the best to the best over a period of time, everything's related to each other. Like with the dairy Holstein, they're related to 22 animals. That's it. Right. You know, they're genetic base and and they're related to only two bulls. And when you talk about, you know, millions of cattle being related to only two bulls, um that that's a serious concern. And so where do you bring diversity back in? And the answer is 
from these old breeds. And, you know, they're never going to compete with the Holstein for volume of milk or anything like that. But they've still got fertility. They've still got vigor and and um, you know, used carefully and crossed into a population, you can help revitalize a population. But if you don't have these genes to go to, you're, you're out of luck. Right. So what we're doing is kind of um, like managing a stock portfolio. You know, you don't invest in just one thing. That's right. the fool's errand. You, right, know, you right. want to be diversified. And so these breeds are kind of like the you know the other stocks that you invest in so that if something happens with the big one, at least you've got something to fall back on. Right, because it, it is very important. If you put in the commercial industry, if you have um, uh, just everything invested uh, in one breed or two breed, because we had mad cow disease, I remember, back in the 90s, and that was a terrifying prospect really worldwide i believe and we want we want to talk about let's let's talk about that and and what we can do going forward in the fourth segment because uh it's just real important that everybody understands this heritage farm animals that we have it's more than just preserving history we are absolutely trying to get the word out that these animals um are are so important to diversify um, all of the different animals that we have out there. So in case something does catastrophic happen to the commercial breeds, we've got this coming back. And we want to learn more from Jeanette when we get back and of how many organizations like this are worldwide. Um, But this is the Housing Hour. We'll be back right after these messages. I ain't hearing nothing. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And back into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith, and we're talking heritage farm animals. It's an important topic. And uh, we have Jeanette Barringer, Senior Program Manager of the Livestock Conservancy in North Carolina. Um, she's telling us all about the heritage farm animals that's so important for us to preserve, protect, and uh, keep in mind, um, it, it, it's it, it, Jeanette. Tell me, in your opinion, uh, is the commercial livestocks that we're using? I mean, it seems like one breed of chicken for meat. Uh, is there a different breed for eggs in the commercial aspect? Can you do you know how well, that breaks down? They um, well, they're commercial hybrids, and there are um, two, maybe three major companies that own all of the genetics and they um, use a series of crosses of different bloodlines to create these hyper productive um, commercial strains and um, and the thing is you know it the the birds you can't take two and and breed them together and think you're still going to get the hyper productive birds it's these three-way crosses and and only the commercial folks have the ability to really do that, you know, financial resources right. and such. Um, so, um, you know, you've you've got very few companies um, that are in charge of all all of the genetics. So we're, com- you know, if these other breeds were to disappear, um, we'd be completely dependent on on commercial industry to produce our our 
you know, our, our food stuff. Well, and, and let me ask you this. I mean, I, I mean, you're you're a consumer out there. I don't know if you you um, uh, consume just heritage farm animals, but w- most of us have to go to the grocery store or you know a, a big club like a Sam's Club or Costco. Mm-hmm. And when I when I have bought chicken breast over there before different breeds that has no taste to me some some of the the chicken out there has zero taste to me uh so i i go after the brands that taste a little bit more chickeny than the bland stuff is there is that because of this type of genetic well yes no it, it um you know it depends on a couple things. You know, the, the, those birds that you find at the supermarket are very fast growing. Some of them are reaching market weight by the time they're six or eight weeks old. That's not a lot of time for nutrient uptake. And, you know, the birds I raise, we don't butcher them till they're 18 weeks old. Right. And I can guarantee you they are full of flavor. And, and, and I'd like uh, to try one. Yeah, they're they're pretty amazing, and and so it, you know it's it's fast growth. It's also you know their bodies are putting a lot of water into it too. When you cook those commercial chickens, you see a lot of water in the bottom of the pan. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, and and so that you know water's not going to bring a lot of flavor to the bird, uh, but uh, you know a lot of it has to do with short period of time that they're out there what they're being fed they're right. probably being fed in in a house and fed commercial chicken feed which is mostly corn and you know compared to a bird that's out foraging eating you know bugs and on the plant. range as they say yeah oh yeah free range you know the flavor profile is going right. to be very different well do you do you think there seems to be like i mentioned coming into this program that oak ridge uh, has allowed chickens to be raised in the backyard um and i see a lot of this uh you know chicken coops are being sold at like walmart um do you see a lot of is the reason for the chickens being raised and is there a resurgence of this uh type of uh farm fresh flavors are they eating the meat or is it just for eggs do you have any idea or opinion well with urban chickens it's typically just for the eggs and what I caution people um, ahead of time is if you're not eating your chickens, what are you going to do when your chickens stop laying eggs for you? Because they're most productive in their first two or three years. After that, egg production takes a nosedive, and so you've got a bunch of pets on your hands. And so if you're not <laughs> interested in... in um, Eating them, uh, you know, chickens. I've got one Leghorn chicken who who's the only pet chicken we have. Is my daughter's, and she just turned fourteen. You mean like <laughs> Frogborn Leghorn? Is that what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she uh, she lays maybe two or three eggs a year at this point, wow. but uh, but um, you know she's perfectly healthy and has a cushy life and and. Uh, I never expected her to live this long, but, you know, I've got friends who have chickens that are almost 20 years old, so... Well, what, um, what's a, what's an age that they're they're past prime to eat? I mean, is there a point where, you know, after... There I, I, is no past prime. Okay. It's just knowing how to cook them. Um, 
and uh, you know, uh, like with an old rooster, uh, if you've ever heard of the dish cocovin. Yeah, cocovin. I mean that's basically rooster and red wine sauce. I had no idea. And, I thought it was chicken. And yeah, cocovin. It's how to cook a rooster, and you do it. Um, you yes. know, uh, very long layered cooking. Yeah, and long cooking technique. I mean, we put all our roosters and our old hens in the crock pot, and a lot of times we'll shred the meat and make barbecue out of them, and oh. they're fabulous. Or um, if you get a little more adventurous and want to venture into sous vide cooking, where you uh, you know you put the the birds with all the spices and stuff into a bag that's vacuum sealed, and then slowly cook it at a very low temperature in a hot water bath and it gets a little complicated well, do, but you, do you ever run into the problem of falling in love with your uh, farm animals and they do become pets because that happened on the farm with my pa- my grandparents yeah well our number one rule is don't give anybody a name <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh i right. i did the leghorn shoot that's my daughter's chicken and we promised we wouldn't eat it so that's why she's 14 and I had one other bird that had a name, um, and he stuck around because uh, he um, was very friendly, very pretty, and very small, so he was easily transportable, and uh, we called him Colbert, and he was kind of my mascot chicken that I'd take to different events, and anybody could hold him. He was very, very gentle. See, I've heard and, this before. And I... when he when he died, I just bald and bald and and you know my husband's like it's just a chicken and i'm like right. no it's bull bear and, yeah. you know well, but uh but, yeah but i don't see, try I, to name it i i know because I, i've heard that some of the heritage breeds chickens and there's some that are more docile than others that uh sure. you know even younger kids they won't peck you I, I remember you know going into uh running into some chickens at my grandparents houses some were meaner than snakes and some were just sitting in your lap all day yeah well in our in our place anything with an attitude gets a one-way ticket to freezer camp <laughs> that's that's it you know freezer I, camp i love it oh yeah yeah <laughs> no no uh, ands if or buts and and over time uh, our flock becomes more uh, gentle and and um, you know easily managed because I mean who wants mean chicken yeah. around? No, and I know my chickens get up to like a mature uh, chicken of the breed I work with gets up to eight pounds and getting whacked in the leg. Yeah. By- well, you know, an eight-pound object with spurs. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> I, I got yeah. That, but l- let me ask you: Do you think you know going back and seeing these commercial breeds like the the, um, the, the problem that we had in the '90s with uh, with the cattle and and the, that disease that came through is is a, a single type of disease? Is it really a threat to our commercial farm uh, animals for our food source? Is that sincerely a threat? Do you, in your opinion? Well, it has been. I mean, it, it was just a few years ago that you had uh, the porcine wasting syndrome. Oh, I it forgot that. Yeah, that's millions, right. Millions, yeah. millions of pigs in the United States. And the one everybody's holding their breath for right now is the African swine fever that is all over Asia, making its way to Europe. And, uh, you know, our colleagues in, in the U.K. are just bracing themselves because this stuff is bad. It's yeah. not only passed 
animal to animal, it can be passed through the meat. Right. You know, one of the one of the outbreaks was triggered by some wild pigs that were eating leftovers from a picnic, and there was tainted meat there. Right, and that set off a huge outbreak, and it's so it's really uh, they actually. Uh, canceled the International Pork Expo this year because they were so worried about um, swine fever moving through the the uh, delegates. Jeanette, we got one minute left, probably less than that. Give me just um, uh, just a quick. How can people get involved with your conservancy and help out? Just real quick. Oh, join the conservancy certainly at uh, you know livestockconservancy.org. Um, buy rare breed products. You don't have to have rare breeds to help them buy their products. Oh, good point. We've got an online breeders directory and products directory, so we can help you find those things. And we're a nonprofit, so if you want to donate, we're certainly happy to take your donations because we got a lot of work ahead of us. Right, and and what we're going to do is we're going to put up uh, your all your information on thehousinghour.com. We're going to put links and donating uh, opportunities for folks to do there. Plus, I didn't know about buying those products. I'm certainly interested in trying that. So, Jeanette, thank you so much for coming into it. Uh, join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk. And this will be up on the thehousinghour.com as a podcast. Share it with families and friends. See you next time on The Housing Hour. That's The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.